So now we're going to hear from uh, Dr. David Tucker, who is an associate professor in the Department of Defense Analysis, co-director of the Center on Terrorism and Irregular Warfare, and an instructor in the Homeland Security Master's Degree Program, all at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California. He holds a PhD from the Claremont Graduate School and is a member of the Board of Visitors of the Marine Corps University. He is author of Enlightened Republicanism, a study of Jefferson's notes on the state of Virginia. Um, let me just show you the two books of our scholars who are here with us today. Um, they're really wonderful, intriguing books, I think in large, um, in large part because they are interpreting and discussing various aspects of these framers. Um, sort of not just your typical biography. They're really trying to understand their thinking. So with that, I will invite Dr. Tucker up to the podium, and thank you. Uh, I wanted to start joining Stephen, thanking um, the, the people at the Ryan Center for organizing this and for their hospitality. It's been very pleasant occasion, which I hope I won't spoil with my remarks. Um, I, I wanted to start by saying that I, I have, uh, my interest in Jefferson is not antiquarian. I've been to Monticello once, uh, wasn't quite under duress, but more out of a sense of duty than any interest in seeing the building or where he lived. I don't know anything about the dumbwaiter that he supposedly invented, uh, or the swivel chair, or the internet, oh sorry, that, that's right, he didn't invent the internet. <laughs> I, I was going to mention that sometimes when I talk to people about Jefferson, they'll, they'll ask me uh, or, or ask a question which suggests they think he wrote the Constitution, um, which he also didn't do. Um, but that's, it is one advantage about speaking about Jefferson that there, is, there has been, um, until recently, I think, a, a very strong, over the la last several decades reaching back into the, as Steve recounted, into the early 20th century anyway, a presumption in his favor. And uh, I think that's, <clears throat> that presumption is warranted, although perhaps not for reasons that other, other people do, which I'll talk about a bit in detail. But my real interest in Jefferson has always been that I think he gives the most comprehensive account of what it is, of what modern politics is about. And that's because I think he had the most comprehensive understanding of what it is to be a human being. And therefore, naturally, his accounts are always contradictory. Uh, and this is a good thing about Jefferson, I want to argue. Uh, and it's part of the reason why I think it's good to go back and think about him. But in order to go back and think about him, there are two things I, I think you have to keep in mind. One is, 
that you, you do have to consider the serious objections to him, some of which Steve mentioned to his thinking and, and to his politics. Uh, but you also have to try to go back beyond what's customarily said of him now. That is to say, almost everybody who talks about Jefferson uh, picks and chooses uh, things he said. And you can, f you can get a quote from Jefferson on virtually any side of any issue. Uh, so people pick and choose. And I think this is uh, it's unfair to Jefferson. And actually, if you really want to understand him, you need to go back to the way he thought about things, or that is to say, how he saw things. What did the world look like to him uh, during his lifetime? And this, this really, I think, is the key to understanding Jefferson. And more particularly, I think you have to go back to that conflict with Hamilton. Uh, and that's what I will, I will do in more detail. But before you do that, I think you have to acknowledge these criticisms that have been made of Jefferson. Uh, Steve mentioned some of them, and I'm, I'll add to them a little bit. Um, Steve mentioned there's one presumption, I think, which works against a day like this in general, which is the, the notion that somehow progress uh, means that we, we, can, we don't need to look to the past at all. We should be just focused on the future. And if this idea has eroded Jefferson's reputation, you could say that's just desserts because one of the key things that Jefferson always argued, in fact, was that we shouldn't be bound by the dead hand of the past. Uh, and so without, you know, in a certain sense, there'd be justice in thinking that <clears throat> if it's the case that that's affected uh, our opinion of him. But there's, a, there's another view, which is that, in fact, this whole notion of progress is bogus. And uh, in fact, any uh, reliance on notions of progress or any reliance on a notion that reason has something to do with human affairs is itself bogus and that reason is somehow a, uh, a tyrant or um, responsible for tyranny in some way. This is very foreign to Jefferson, but it affects him insofar as that I think of all the founders, Jefferson is the one most, most identified with uh, talk of reason and the importance of reason in human affairs. So if, if you're one of those people who distrust reason and there are more and more of those around, then you'll be somebody who will distrust Jefferson. Um, another criticism of Jefferson, this is made by two uh, prominent historians of the, the 1790s, Stanley Elkins and Eric McKittrick, is that um, in their view, he was a, they, they used the phrase, he was both utopian and something of a gadgeteer. And their objection to him really is that he was very committed to his principles, to his ideas. Uh, so committed to them that he couldn't, uh, in a certain way, he couldn't bend when he needed to bend. And on the other hand, he was not sufficiently committed to carrying through his reforms, which meant that in many respects, he was in a certain way a kind of bystander on these critical events that occurred in the 1790s. I think that that's a misunderstanding of him, a kind of complete misunderstanding of him, actually. But there is something in this notion that if you, th you think about this, and Steve, Steve mentioned this, you have Hamilton who really created the federal government, Madison who created the Constitution, Adams who really, I think you can argue, was the father of the revolution in important ways, and then there's Jefferson who, sipping his wine, enjoying his fine French food, somehow gets credit for all of that. This is, this is really annoying to people who, who don't like Jefferson, and I, I understand that. Uh, another criticism of Jefferson, kind of the contrary of the criticism of these uh, historians, is uh, 
that, he, that Jefferson was way too committed to his principles and way too ruthless in imposing them on American, uh, American life. This is the criticism of Connor Cruz O'Brien, who in fact refers to Jefferson as a ruthless prophet. Um, and O'Brien's key point, this is in his book on Jefferson and the French Revolution, his key point is that the revolution was, he even goes so far to say at one point that the revolution, the French Revolution and interpretations of that and support for it or, or criticism of it, that was the key difference between Hamilton and Jefferson. Again, I think that's, that's not true. It was really a symptom of their um, differences. But O'Brien looks at, this is the, the criticism, you know, these phrases that Jefferson is, uh, again, I guess depending on your, your view of, the, of revolution, uh, Jefferson has criticized these, you know, the tree of liberty must be, uh, must be manure, manured by the blood of its martyrs. I like a little revolution now, now and again. It's like a summer storm. It clears the air. Um, you know, you could, uh, you could maybe excuse those things when the French Revolution started, but there's no evidence uh, which, o which O'Brien points out. In fact, he points out all the evidence that, that shows that even during the terror, uh, Jefferson was unmoved in his support of the revolution. And you can say, well, gee, you know, there's a lag. He didn't really understand. But I think he did, actually, uh, understand the amount of blood that was being shed. And O'Brien makes a great deal of this letter that Jefferson wrote to his former assistant in France saying, if all the world were reduced to Adam and Eve, as long as they're free, it's worth it. So that's quite, a, quite an amount of bloodshed in the name of liberty. Uh, and I think you have to acknowledge that there's this period in Jefferson's life where, in fact, he made statements like that. And I can understand why people who were less, uh, less optimistic about the course of history uh, might be disturbed by someone preaching uh, in, in effect arguing that we, or could be understood to be arguing that we should import the, the terror of the French Revolution into the United States. But uh, beyond that, these, these criticisms, I think these are really, uh, the last one I think by Connor Cruz O'Brien, although I think he exaggerates some things and, and misunderstands others, that's an important part of Jefferson that, that we need to take account of. But the other criticisms, I, I, as I hope I'll be able to show, I think don't, and, and some others I'm going to mention, don't, don't carry much weight. But the biggest thing probably is, uh, Steve alluded to this, and this is the question of Jefferson and slavery, and particularly his relation to one slave, uh, whose name has already been mentioned, so I guess I have to repeat it, Sally Hemings. Um, that's done more than anything, I think, to tarnish Jefferson's reputation. And again there, I think, uh, you simply have to acknowledge that he did have um, a prejudice against blacks in general, even though uh, he may have over, may I say, it's not definitively proven by the DNA evidence, at least as I understand that, he may have overcome that with regard to one, uh, one person. Uh, but you have to acknowledge that, and I think you just simply have to say he did have a prejudice, although I hope we'll have a chance uh, to talk about this uh, in more detail, because I think there are things that can be said um, that need to be kept in mind when you talk about Jefferson and slavery that are often forgotten. Uh, to me, what's more important in a way than that, than that issue of slavery is the way in which, the, the broader way in which that has been interpreted or could be interpreted, has been interpreted in the past and even recently, and I'm going to mention uh, um, a, a prominent uh, Lincoln scholar, Alan Guelzo, who makes this 
criticism, which is that the key thing in a way is not that Jefferson had prejudices against blacks or that he didn't do enough to do away with slavery. It's that in fact he was uh, n not verbally again, but in practice he was actually a defender of the system of uh, gentry rule that incorporated slavery. And Guelzo goes so far as to say that Jefferson actually wanted to extend this uh, across the United States. Beyond that, which I think it's simply, uh, I, I think that's simply false, but beyond that, and this is the point where I think that, that well, there's something more to be, uh, or something to be taken seriously in Guelzo's account, is he says he contrasts Lincoln and Jefferson. And he's very intent on making sure that there's no connection at all between Jefferson and Lincoln. And he presents Lincoln as a, again, uh, to me, it's kind of the way in which you can understand, a good way maybe to understand Hamilton, as a for, forward-thinking proponent of liberal capitalism, as somebody who believed in mobility, wanted to see, wanted a, a dynamic economic system which would offer at least the opportunity uh, for all people to achieve what they could achieve in human life. And that's the way he presents, Guelzo presents Lincoln, and he contrasts Lincoln in that regard with Jefferson and says Jefferson was essentially a defender of this uh, gentry system of rule despite um, Guelzo's phrases. Uh, he says Jefferson was the champion of an agrarian order that concealed an elite class agenda within a fog of solidarity with farmers and laborers. Uh, I think that that's uh, the, again, there's, I think there's some truth to this, or there's something you have to take seriously here, although I, what I hope will show that is, in fact, there is a very close connection between Jefferson and Lincoln, precisely on the points that Guelzo raises um, with regard to this notion of opportunity, and that Jefferson is, in fact, a, a really thoroughgoing enemy of the system that he grew up in and actually pushed him to prominence, uh, first in Virginia and then ultimately in the United States. Um, one thing I think that um, Guelzo's account brings up again is this, this connection of Jefferson to um, slavery and these issues uh, and not very far removed from the uh, accounts of Sally Hemings. That is to say, there's a way in which Gelzo suggests, if not Jefferson personally, then people like him, these gentry, really wanted to insist on the preservation of this system, largely because they wanted to continue to have access to their female slaves. Um, that's the sort of thing I think a gross, uh, with regard to Jefferson, if not some others, with regard to Jefferson, I think that's a, a, a misunderstanding, an exaggeration, and, and even close to a slander. But it, it does bring us a step closer to the 1790s because, as Steve pointed out, things like that were commonly said of Jefferson. Uh, the political rhetoric around the 1800 election, the, the, actually it was 1802 when Calendar re, re, uh, first published this accusation, but it was spoken of before that. Uh, it was a rumor uh, before that, and those are the kinds of things that, that were said publicly about Jefferson, uh, among other things, said publicly about Jefferson. But to me, the, the key point, again, is that if the, the only reason to take Jefferson seriously is because despite all these uh, bad things that are said about him, some of which I think have some justification, he still is the best 
has the, offers the best insight into understanding who we are, who Americans are, what the United States is. And that's what I want to try to uh, talk about uh, talk about now. And I want to do that again by talking about the conflict with Hamilton and, and, and do that in two ways. First, to talk about differences of interpretation over the Constitution. And secondly, to talk about the more fundamental issue, which is what's the best way of life for people to live? Uh, there's, Jefferson spent a lot of time thinking and writing about this. Uh, much more time, I think, than at least the written record shows Hamilton spent thinking about it. And I don't mean to say by that that, uh, again, that Hamilton was only interested in power. I think that's, that's not true. But it is true that, that Jefferson spent a lot more time thinking and writing about what is the best way of life uh, for people to live? What, and, and more importantly, in a way, what are the current possibilities? Uh, if we can think what the best way of life is, what's the likelihood that we could actually create that way of life here in the United States? So those are the two things I, I want to focus on. Um, I think you can summarize uh, the constitutional conflict be, between well, let me, let me say first, I think that it's fairly easy to see the difference between Hamilton and Jefferson, an interpretation of the Constitution. Um, Jefferson's principle was really, he, he, in a way you could say, he stood on the, the, uh, the 10th Amendment. All powers, this is quoting from Jefferson, all powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states or the people. So the key point for Jefferson is the government is given certain powers. It can only exercise those powers. And those powers have to be, there's, there's specific powers, and they have to be explicitly given to the, to the government. If that's not the case, then the government can't exercise those powers. Uh, <clears throat> Excuse me. He argued that if you if you took an alternative view, you actually opened up what he referred to as a boundless field of power, no longer susceptible of any definition. So Jefferson was being very um, dichotomous in his thinking here. Um, you you either limit explicitly limit the power of the government, or you're granting boundless power to the government. And he believed the latter was simply incompatible with a democratic, republican form of government. So this is, this is essentially his, the, the basis for his idea of a strict uh, reading of the Constitution and the powers that granted the government. I think it's also possible to state pretty simply what Hamilton's principle of constitutional interpretation was. And I'm quoting from his opinion on the constitutionality of the, Nas of the National Bank. Quote, every power vested in a government is in its nature sovereign and includes a right to employ all the means requisite to the attainment of the ends of such power and which are not precluded by restrictions and exceptions specified in the Constitution or not immoral or not contrary to the essential ends of political society. And Hamilton added, uh, that this principle of constitutional interpretation was, quote, essential to every step of the progress to be made by the United States. 
So I think you could, you could summarize the difference between Jefferson and Hamilton on constitutional interpretation by saying that for Jefferson, a government should have only those powers explicitly and specifically granted to it, while for Hamilton, the government had every power not explicitly and specifically denied to it. I think there's, there's some truth there, but I think it also, also in fairness to Hamilton, um, you need to recognize that he did see limitations in the exercise of federal power. One was the sovereign power of the states, which as far as I know, he never, he never denied. The second is that with regard to the power of the national government, when you're constructing these uh, implied powers, you have to recognize that you can only do that with the powers that were specifically given to the government. So he says, for example, uh, the national government is sovereign in all respects, but he said to a certain extent, that is the extent of the objects of its specified powers. If, so if, if there is a specified power, you have to interpret that power broadly. If it's not specified, the government doesn't have that power. So while I think that there isn't a way in which uh, again, I think this is a point in which you might say Jefferson was following a, uh, Hamilton was following a Jeffersonian principle and writing in a way in which he didn't really believe. Uh, I think that at least in the written record with his regard to the opinion on the constitutionality of the bank, he did try to limit uh, what you could understand as being interpretive, uh, interpretation of implied powers, but it's still much broader, I think, than Jefferson's. Um, Ultimately, Hamilton is arguing that, as he said at one point, um, if the end be clearly comprehended with any of the specified powers, and if the measure, and if the measure have an obvious relation to that end and is not forbidden by any particular provision of the Constitution, the power may safely be deemed to come within the compass of the national authority. While acknowledging Hamilton's qualification of the constructive principle of constitutional interpretation. I think our experience over the past several decades might lead us to be, uh, at least I'll, I'll say this, it leads me to be more sympathetic with Jefferson's account. That is, I think Jefferson's view was, if you start to talk about implied powers, you've entered what he said, this, this boundless field of governmental power. And it becomes very hard then to start to restrict that, that power. Hamilton, I, I, in, the, in his opinion on the Constitution of the Bank, Hamilton actually acknowledged this. He said, quote, the moment the literal meaning is departed from, there is a chance of error and abuse. But Hamilton's response was, we have to run that, uh, run that, take that chance, because, quote, an adherence to the letter of its constitutional powers would at once arrest the motions of the government. One might suppose that arresting the motions of the federal government is exactly what Jefferson wanted to do. Uh, and that's certainly the way he spoke when he was out of office. Uh, in office, we all know he did things differently. Right? Uh, I want to argue that he was actually consistent in this. The biggest exception is, being, is, is the purchase of Louisiana. And if you think about it, uh, as Jefferson readily admitted, uh, the Constitution did not give him the explicit power to buy territory incorporate, and to incorporate it into the United States. 
So he, he acted, you could say, on uh, the implied power uh, in the Constitution. But that's not actually how Jefferson explained this. <clears throat> His point was that, or, or the way he, he, he understood this was, the purchase of Louisiana was actually unconstitutional. And I could be impeached for having done it. And the only thing I can do is plead the necessity of the act and hope that, uh, on the one hand, there might be a constitutional amendment to uh, legitimate what I did, or that uh, the, the House of Representatives and the Senate will approve the act. Uh, but he acknowledged that it was unconstitutional. And some of his supporters wrote and said, well, look, why don't we, why don't we as, as Steve would say, why don't we spin it this way? And uh, Jefferson said, no. If you, if you do that, then implicitly you're telling people that the government has unlimited power, and we can't do that. We Republicans can't do that. We have to, we have to acknowledge that it was unconstitutional, but as he said many years later, the way he put it was, there's a law higher than the written law, and necessity, and do you, I mean, it's worth thinking what he meant by necessity, but necessity is that higher law, and if we hadn't purchased Louisiana, uh, the French would control the mouth of the Mississippi River. Uh, that would have caused uh, terrible consequences for the United States. In fact, Jefferson thought it was so bad that, that and this is really unbelievable, he, he argued that if, we don't, if I hadn't done that, we ultimately would have been compelled to form an alliance with Great Britain. And given his animosity towards Great Britain, this is a remarkable statement coming from Jefferson, and it shows the degree to which he felt actually he, he had no choice but to purchase Louisiana. So I, I believe, and we could talk about this, uh, I think it's worth talking about, but in Jefferson's own mind, he was perfectly consistent uh, in purchasing Louisiana and arguing for limited, uh, uh, a limited interpretation of, of the powers of the government and against implied powers. What Hamilton said actually in I think this is a statement that Jefferson would have agreed with completely. Hamilton at one point said, the means by which national exigencies are to be provided for, national inconveniences obviated, national prosperity promoted, are of such infinite variety, extent, and complexity that there must of necessity be great latitude of discretion in the selection and application of those means. I believe that Jefferson would have agreed with that statement. But he wouldn't have given up the point of uh, the principle of, of uh, strict construction, again, because of the implications for assumptions people make about the power of the government. When you're talking about this issue, I think there's a couple of things that, and, and coming to some judgment of uh, what Jefferson did in that particular case, there's a couple of things that, that need to be kept in mind. First, Jefferson did admit that it was unconstitutional, and he refused to accept any, any spin that would try to turn it into something else. And secondly, he generally understood the kind of sentiment that, that um, Hamilton expressed there about the variability of human affairs requiring that there be some principle of discretion in the government somewhere. He generally restricted that to at least uh, he, he was inclined to restrict that to more extreme occasions and generally to foreign affairs, not to domestic issues. 
And I think in both those, in the latter two cases, he's, he, that distinguishes him from Hamilton, whom I, I believe saw this as a uh, implied powers as operating both in foreign and domestic affairs and in the ordinary operation of government rather than just in uh, crises or extreme moments. But again, one, the, one key point I think here between Jefferson and, and Hamilton is this agreement that there has to be some element of discretion or prudence in the government. Human affairs simply demand that. It's interesting to me that if you, if you compare the Constitution, Jefferson wrote, as far as I know, wrote two constitutions, uh, both, for, both for Virginia, one before he was governor and one after he was governor. And one key difference, there are a number of differences, but one key difference is that uh, after he had been governor, which I, I think every Jefferson, Jeffersonian, every Jefferson scholar acknowledges was probably not the high point of his career, um, but in defense of him, it's often said that if you look at the powers of the governor of Virginia, uh, they were very weak. Uh, others argue that Jefferson did nothing to, you know, to change that. But, um, but it's, it's interesting to me that after he had that experience in Revolutionary War, and Virginia was invaded while he was the governor, uh, in the second constitution he wrote, when he came to describe the executive, he said, we give him those powers only which are necessary to execute the laws and administer the government, and which are not in their nature either legislative or judiciary. The application of this idea must be left to reason. If you look actually at what Jefferson, I think a, 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 an un, uh, a somewhat un, uh, in, incompletely mined, if there's any part of Jefferson's career, one part that hasn't been dug through sufficiently is his, is his tenure as governor. Uh, because I think he learned a lot there, and it, if anything, it made him uh, more Hamiltonian in understanding uh, the necessities of government. He, d he did things as governor that uh, I think many people uh, who see Jefferson as an idealist would be surprised to, to hear that he did. Again, but his argument was under compulsion, internal war, I mean, we were being invaded, but he, he gave advice to... to uh, people who were not thoroughly supportive of the revolutionary cause, that they should be seized at night. Um, he was happy to confiscate property. Uh, I mean, he acknowledged that the script people were given, you know, this paper money was probably going to be worthless. Uh, but those things, again, necessity, he argued, compelled that. And I think he came to really believe that, um, while at the same time wanting to maintain a, a, a strict interpretation an understanding of strict constitutional interpretation because, again, he saw that the alternative to that was a boundless field of power that the government would enter, would enter into. I think, uh, you know, if uh, this, this afternoon or, or when we, we discuss my remarks when, I'm, when I close, it's, it's worth coming back and thinking that this, especially in Constitution Day, given our own uh, current constitutional practices. But for me, the key point here, and this is where I think you really get down to the difference, the, the really critical stuff, the real important difference between Hamilton and Jefferson, I think is not, not this issue of constitutional interpretation as such, although I think there are important differences there. But the notion that they both accepted that there had to be some principle of discretion in the government. There had to be some power that could act outside the law, not necessarily against the law, ultimately it had to act in support of the law, 
but had to be able to do things that the law hadn't previously taken account of. And the key issue there is making those decisions based on some judgment about what's good for the people of Virginia during the Revolution or the people of America uh, of the United States when you're, when you're the president. So inherently, there is in this notion of discretion an implied understanding of what, what's the good that we're trying to achieve. And here I think this is the real contrast between Jefferson and, and Hamilton. And that's what I would like to, to focus on next. What's this difference uh, that they understood? I think there was a clear difference in their understanding of what was the best life that Americans could lead. And what were the chances that that life might actually be uh, established in this territory that the former colonists now possessed. The key, I think, to to understanding Jefferson's attitude here is to understand where you've got to situate him in space and time. Um, in space, he was, uh, he was, and the rest of the United States was sitting at the periphery of the British Empire. And in time, they were 1,800, 780-odd years into the Christian era. When Jefferson looked back in history, what he saw was a, a tale of injustice and, and misery. At every point in recorded history, the natural rights of human beings were disregarded so that the self-interest of kings, priests, and nobles might be served. Uh, someone mentioned that Ham uh, Jefferson referred to Bacon, Locke, and Newton as the, the triumvirate of the three greatest whoever, men who ever lived. Well, kings, priests, and nobles, those are the three worst kinds of people who ever lived as far as Jefferson was concerned. But that's what he saw when he looked back. Um, all he saw was a tale of, of force being used to deprive the many of what they were due in order to, to serve a favored few. That's the entire scope of human history in, in a sentence. When he looked to Great Britain, he saw, he thought he saw in the history of Great Britain some, some glimmers of freedom, but these had largely been snuffed out over the past 100, 150 years. They'd been snuffed out because of the growth of government power in Great Britain, and this growth was prompted by competition between Great Britain and other states. The wars, particularly with France, that led Great Britain to develop a system of government, a system of revenue gathering, that increased the power of the British state. At the, again, Jefferson thought at the expense of the mass of British subjects. As Britain's liberal capitalist system developed, the British government used its power of the purse to favor certain individuals and corporations, in effect buying their support by selling them its debt debt incurred because of the military campaigns against the French and others. So the system that the British developed, and, and it's not because somebody like Hamilton, there, there are some figures like Hamilton in British history in this regard, but it developed more uh, as a response to this geopolitical necessity, which was how do we compete with France? Larger population, um, bigger territory, centrally located, 
we're just a little island nation, how do we compete? And what the British did was develop a financial system that really has come to characterize the whole modern world. And that financial system, uh, various details to it, but the sense what, the, the, the critical thing was you take the debt and you specify that certain taxes will be used to pay the interest on the debt, not the principal, but the interest. And you get wealthy people to fund that debt, to buy that debt in return for those steady interest payments. At the same time, the British Crown and the Prime Minister used the Crown's appointment authority to select certain people in Parliament and give them government jobs, thereby, in a way, buying their votes. So there had been this chance, because of the common law tradition, which Jefferson respected, that there would develop in Great Britain a system of free government. But this had been snuffed out, Jefferson thought, by the development of this economic system. And I think you can see already uh, the basis for his opposition to Hamilton, which Jefferson thought was that Hamilton simply was going to reimpose or, or impose on the United States this British system. Um, when Jefferson looked at history, he saw that he believed that there were very, very limited opportunities. There had been sort of one maybe perhaps in Great Britain, but really the United States was unique. In all of human history, there was only one place where the, the understanding of the principles of free government coincided with the physical circumstances that would actually allow those principles to operate. And that was this vast expanse of land to the west. The key point was you wanted people to own their own land. If people own their own land, then they could stand up to people. You know, if they had something to stand on, they could stand up to people. And that became the core of Jefferson's political activity, guaranteeing that that land would be available. When he was in the Continental Congress, he proposed uh, uh, law to that, that would have incorporated those territories into the United States and after 1800 have excluded slavery, I want to point out. Um, that, that law wasn't passed, but elements of it and those essential ideas did ultimately take effect through the Northwest Ordinance. So Jefferson's commitment to farming, it's not because he had read a lot of romantic poetry about shepherds and it's, he sometimes talked that way, about that way. It's, it's actually a very cold calculation of what you need to do to have free government. And you have to have people who own their own land because that's the only way they will have the authority to stand up for themselves. So that's the key, that's the key issue. If, if you think about people who, who are paid a wage for a living, they are essentially subordinate to the person who pays that wage. In that sense, they're not really free. I think Jefferson believed beyond that. That was his opposition to manufacturing. Beyond that, I think Jefferson believed that anybody who was caught up in this British system of credit, uh, of uh, depending for their living uh, on interest payments and that sort of thing, uh, was really not free in a fundamental sense. They had been bought and sold, and there's language like this in Jefferson's writing, bought and sold uh, as effectively uh, as a slave had been. Now. It's interesting that, that that kind of language was used in the Revolution and after, uh, but, but that's, that's the way it was seen. And any system of government 
that tried to promote that British system, which is essentially what Hamilton did, uh, any effort like that was, for Jefferson, an attack on the possibility, for the first time in human history, that you could have a government actually based on principles of the, the true understanding of freedom and equality. Jefferson's whole political program is based on making this possible. So what do you need to do to do this? Well, a key thing is you have to have education. If you've got people who can stand up for their own rights, they have to actually understand what those rights are. So public education, very important to Jefferson. Uh, you want to pass laws which equalize the distribution of property. So principally in Virginia, do away with primogeniture, which meant the firstborn inherited all the land, and entail, which meant estates couldn't be broken up. A lot of people say that was already in process in Virginia and other places in the United States because of uh, the labor market. I think that's true, but it was important for Jefferson to make sure that those laws were done away with, that the law gave no support for building the kind of oligarchy that came to rule Great Britain. Freedom of religion, also critically important. If you're going to attack uh, kings, priests, and nobles, you have to attack the basis of uh, clerical authority, which is, in Jefferson's view, was the establishment of a church. So really important if you're going to do away with aristocracy and allow people to be free uh, to have freedom of religion. Those three key elements, those are the three key elements of Jefferson's system. Along with that, you want a government of limited powers. If the government is powerful, the people are not. The people are not free. You want a government of limited power and you want a government that is very frugal and simple. It doesn't pile up debt, because if it does pile up debt, then that debt will be used as Hamilton wanted to use it to start this system which will favor a small minority at the expense of the majority. And will actually, I think Jefferson believed, will actually encourage, because it creates the possibility, will actually encourage warfare. So that's, that's the basic, the fundamental contrast between Jefferson and Hamilton. Um, I think there are three criticisms you can make of, um, of Hamilton's system. Uh, and, and it's important, again, to go back, I think, and think about these criticisms the way they would have seen to, been seen by people in the 1790s. To pay, again, to fund the debt, to buy the support of powerful people, which I think was, it was, was Hamilton's purpose. Uh, in order to do that, the government has to have the authority to tax. In Great Britain and in the United States, the tax that, was, that proponents of this system liked the best was the excise tax. That was a tax on goods produced inside the country, inside the United States. Uh, no no um, uh, income tax and no taxes on trade uh, in and outside of the country, but taxes internally. In Great Britain, this system uh, excise officers had lots of authority. They, they could and they did uh, go into businesses in the middle of the night to make sure that they were getting an accurate account of what was occurring so they could accurately tax. This system was a, was a powerful system developed in Great Britain, but it was understood to be a system um, that was, uh, could be abused. In fact, uh, it's interesting, I think, to note that, that Blackstone, in his commentary on the English law, Blackstone would have been one of the most prominent authorities on English law, said, the rigor and arbitrary proceedings of the excise laws seem hardly compatible 
with the temper of a free nation. They were intrusive. They were arbitrary. No trial by jury. If you break the excise laws, regulations, you're tried by excise uh, uh, administrators. Um, the system was seen as, uh, even by people, by Blackstone, I think, again, as, as it raised a question about whether it was actually compatible with a, with a government of free people. Uh, the taxation was also regressive. So a contemporary, a British con near contemporaries of, contemporary of Hamilton said, as a, uh, um, by taking from the rich, we only diminish their luxury, but by taking from the poor, we increase their misery. So that was a criticism of the excise. So this is the tax that Hamilton's system relied on. Given that background, it seems to be it's not, shouldn't be a surprise that Jefferson and other people objected to it. Second, the system that the British developed supported oligarchy. Um, here's a, the, probably the most, uh, I, I think the most uh, interesting account of this is a book called, interestingly called The Sinews of Power by a historian who looks at the development of that system. And he says here, the competition to hold a large part of the public debt is not difficult to explain. The acquisition of substantial public funds guaranteed their holder regular income in the form of tax revenues assigned to serve the national debt. This security in turn conferred enormous power in the private money market. Backed by the large sums of money which made up public finance, an incorporated creditor could also dominate private borrowing. The prospect of financial hegemony in both the public and private spheres was the glittering prospect offered by corporate dominance of the public debt. Again, that's the British and uh, Hamilton hope, the Hamiltonian system. Uh, two, two historians of the British Empire, uh, in talking about how this system allowed the British to become the single most powerful nation in the world, said that of Great Britain, as the 18th century witnessed the consolidation of large estates and their perpetuation through the male line, so it saw the growth of a merchant oligarchy and its, quote, entailment, unquote, through commercial dynasties. So for the same reason that Jefferson was opposed to the accumulation of large landed estates in the United States, so was he opposed to Hamilton's system, which would have done in a very modern way exactly what this tradition of, of large landholding, uh, large estates would have done. It would have produced a socioeconomic system incompatible with democratic republican government. Finally, let me, let me mention what I think is, uh, Steve alluded to this, but as well. I, I think there's really a difference. When you look at this system uh, as it fully developed in Great Britain, you, you do have to ask yourself what purpose it served. That is to say, it's, it's sometimes difficult to see, I, I guess you could put it this way. Uh, British commerce was meant to increase British war power, and British war power was ultimately in the service of increasing British commerce. So you get the sense, you could say, that the British system was a gigantic shark uh, trolling through the international waters, constantly moving, constantly uh, looking for the next victim to swallow. And if it didn't do that, it would die or it would be swallowed by somebody else. So the, the question for, I think, a good question for the Hamiltonians and the Hamiltonian system is, was Hamilton's system anything more than a self-replicating engine of acquisition? Um, I think that's not, again, not entirely fair uh, to Hamilton, but I think it's a, a serious weakness of the Hamiltonian account. On the other hand, 
Jefferson's point, one of his points, was that if you don't have a system designed to build national greatness in terms of acquisition of territory, uh, military might, you can have a national system devoted to what came to be called internal improvements. And you really see this in Jefferson's educational writings. Uh, this is a subject in which, as far as I know, Hamilton had very little to say, and I think it's a, a, a serious deficiency in Hamilton's account of human being, as well as uh, of government. But let me just quote um, one, one passage um, from Jefferson's um, writing about the, the uh, when he was talking about the Virginia um, the University of Virginia, uh, if I can find that quickly. Um, it's my favorite, one of my favorite Jefferson quotes. So I should know it by heart, but I don't actually. So if I don't find it here in a minute, I'll pass on. Sorry. Um, the point he makes in the educational system, there's two components to it. One is everybody gets a certain amount of education. But then when he spoke about the University of Virginia, what he said was, ultimately, most generally, the University of Virginia is designed to make people, um, to, to train them in habits of reflection and r make them realize that the sources of happiness are within themselves. So again, you can could, you could pass this off as high-flown Jeffersonian rhetoric. It certainly is. His, that writing, it's sometimes referred to as the Rockfish Gap Report. Um, a, a not necessarily a pretty name for a beautiful document. But I think it expresses uh, really a kind of comprehensive view of what human beings are and what human beings need to be happy. And that, I think, ultimately, again, I would say, is the fundamental difference between Jefferson and Hamilton. And if, Hamil and if Jefferson has any relevance, uh, it's because he understood that and articulated it in a way I think that no other American statesman ever has. And that's his, ultimately, uh, despite all the other things that can be said about him, that's his greatest uh, legacy and his greatest claim to our attention. Thank you. Okay. Take questions if, if there's, do we have time for that? Yes. I think it really comes down to what they meant by national greatness, I guess you could say. And I think Jeff, uh, I think Hamilton had a very, I would say, very conventional view of that, of national greatness. And I'm not, I'm not dismissing that. I'm not saying um, he's entirely wrong in that. I think Jefferson had an unusual, for, for a statesman, somebody involved in politics for as long as he, he was, he had an unusual view of what national greatness meant. And sometimes he's, he's uh, somebody like Welzo, for example, will in effect 
accuse him of encouraging sloth. See? And uh, a nicer name for sloth is leisure. Uh, it's hard to see in the Hamiltonian world. If you look at Hamilton himself, you know, it's, I, I mentioned to, I mentioned to, uh, to Steve, his Hamilton book is very thick. My Jefferson book is very thin. Hamilton loved to, I mean, it's, it's incredible work, workload the man carried. Um, Jefferson wasn't slothful, but Jefferson had a really deep respect for leisure. And, uh, and again, Guelzo says, well, that's that, you know, slavery made that possible. And I think what Jefferson would have said was, yeah, it did historically, but I want to devise a system in which what he referred to as the natural aristocrats, the people who will go through the University of Virginia, I don't know how many undergraduates there understand that they're natural aristocrats, but uh, who would go through the University of Virginia would be, would be educated and trained to appreciate their leisure. And they would use that well. And part of that leisure was reflecting on the purposes of government and, and, and then when they weren't at leisure, helping run the government. It's, it's you know, I, I've never been a farmer, but I understand that farming is a very arduous life, but there are also some, there's also some downtime. And um, not to say that all the farmers, as Jefferson seemed to think, sit around reading the Iliad when they're not milking their cows, but uh, <laughs> there, it's a different way of life. And, uh, you know, one thing that's interesting was when you read about industrialization in the United States, or if you read about it in, you know, in, in the history of in, in Great Britain, the degree to which people actually had to be trained to show up on time and to work like animals, essentially, for eight hours and then you know, get drunk. Um, that was the life that Jefferson did not want the majority of people in the United States to live. And he was willing to sacrifice national greatness as, as that's conventionally understood in order not to have that happen. And ultimately, when you talk about, I think if you, you present them with a particular problem, they might actually agree on the right way to solve it. But Jefferson always wanted to insist that there was a difference in principle, and he wanted to leave, uh, you know, leave people as much as possible at liberty. And this was partly because he believed that people, partly by nature and partly by education, would use that liberty uh, in a productive way, and even if they didn't, you could guarantee that the government would not. If I could jump in here, he was also sure. frequently disappointed as he was sitting up on Monticello. We have some letters that he wrote where there'd be another round of this natural aristocracy down at UVA, <laughs> drunken brawls, and you know he'd be writing about how disappointed he was that these students were just not taking advantage of his, it's sort of a classic case of his, his ideals confronting reality. It's true, it's true. Yes, uh, you mentioned how Jefferson had executive experience as a governor that may shape how he decided to make choices as president. Would you comment on the differences Hamilton and Jefferson had regarding the role of presidency in driving government? Um, Hamilton, famous for talking about um, executive as a source of energy in government, and certainly took on the role as Treasury Secretary in that way. So do you see a distinct difference just within the relationship of the three branches and how they Yeah, I mean, with regard to, again, if you look at the detail, Steve made this point, and I, I, I think there's a lot of truth to it, that you, you can argue that 
Jefferson was a Hamiltonian president. I mean, he, he believed the president had powers and should exercise those powers, and he didn't, he didn't hesitate to do that. I mean, in the sense of, if he hesitated, it was because he wasn't quite sure what to do rather than because he, he thought he sh whether he should do something or not. But um, again, I think the, the, difference, the difference may be that Jefferson saw the presidency uh, the example, again, if you go back to the Louisiana Purchase, what some people would say, I think, is that, uh, and I tend to agree with it, that, that Jefferson thought the president could appeal to the people in a way in which I think the Federalists would have been concerned about. And uh, I'm not saying that Jefferson did this or thought of the presidency in this way to the degree that later presidents did, but I think that you can see in, in, in that... Um, in, in the way he talked about the Louisiana Purchase, some, some of that developing already, that the president has a direct connection with the American people, and ultimately uh, that, that was a distinction with the Federalists. Um, that, that's one way. The, the other thing is he was very, he was very uh, suspicious of the judiciary, unelected judges, that's inherently undemocratic, and therefore, in Jefferson's mind, um, worthy of suspicion. Uh, and again, in that way, I think he, he disagreed uh, with, um, with the Federalists generally or people who saw, wanted to see the judiciary as a bulwark. I think he saw it as a, as a, as a threat to liberty rather than a defender of liberty. And basically, again, you know, often when we talk about things, we come down to what was their attitude towards the mass of people in the United States. And Jefferson has the advantage of being more, you know, as we would under, understand that conventionally democratic in that he had, he, I think had more trust in the American people um, than the Federalists, at least, were seen to have. Um, people can be divided into strengths like words and numbers, and I see Alexander Hamilton as a strong number person, <laughs> not just with money, but the concepts that he had. But Jefferson, you know, with the Declaration of Independence, he was totally words and inspirational. And even though he had concrete things he did, that to me that's what he represents. Yeah, I think this, Steve alluded to this, and I think it's true that in the, you know, if you're, if you wanted to set out uh, to figure out what's the life that's most likely to give you immortality, it's probably a life of writing rather than a, a life of constitutional, or, or of, uh, you know, government to, you know, bureaucratic activity. Um, immortal words seem to carry longer than, uh, you know, immortal deeds are immortal because somebody captures them in words. So that's an advantage that Jefferson has over, over Hamilton. But I, I would say if you, if you actually look at what he did, um, he, he did do a lot. You know, he did accomplish a lot. And his, the work that he did, although people object, find him devious and so forth, he really was a good politician in a way that I think he's not often given credit for, except to be, you know, uh, scolded for being devious. Mm -hmm. um, well, I guess what I'm sort of interested in is that you, you describe him as sort of really understanding sort of the fullness of human nature and the contradictory aspects of human nature, and yet. Um, and maybe you could talk a little bit about this in terms of the head and the heart letter. Um, yeah. But, but <laughs> do I have to? Well, but I mean, I, I just think that there's there's this the problem that I see with Jefferson is that 
um, he sort of always comes down on this side of, well, reason will prevail, or it should. And certainly Hamilton has you know, his opposite statement where he says men are reasoning rather than reasonable. Um, and I, I, I think there's a really interesting tension in that notion of head and heart and these two men. Yeah, I, I, you know, again, I think this is, a, you know, of course, my own interpretation is very favorable to Jefferson on this, in this, in this regard. But uh, for those of you who don't know this, the head and the heart is a letter that Jefferson wrote to a woman when he was in Paris, a woman he had a, a flirtation with, and uh, it, it's sometimes described as the world's oddest love letter. And I, I mean, I, I guess I don't know enough about love letters to want to know whether that's true or not, but, but it seems to me uh, it probably could qualify. It's very odd. His head and his heart debate whether they, it was a good thing to have kind of gotten attached to this woman. And interestingly, the, you know, the heart, well, it's, <clears throat> it's an interesting letter for sure. But I, I guess what, what I would say is that another example of this, this may not seem uh, to have much connection, but I think it does. Uh, there's, a, there's a very kind of funny article written. A historian went back and said, what did other people say about farmers? You know, Jefferson, his famous Notes in Virginia, comes out in the early 1780s, this wonderful praise of farming, you know, the, uh, in beautiful language and so forth. And some historian thought to ask, well, what were other people saying about these farmers in Virginia? And sure enough, when he went back and looked, they were saying things like, you know, lazy, uh, useless, unproductive, drunk, dirty. Uh, you know, the, the, the human farmer didn't come off very well. And, and I have to say, I think Jefferson knew that. I mean, one thing that's interesting about his time as governor is what he, had, what he learned about the militia, which was made up of these people, largely. And what he learned about the militia is that they were really unreliable. They were good, they were pretty good when they were fighting near home, near their homes, but Otherwise, they weren't really worth much. So the myth of the, you know, the Minutemen and all that, Jefferson quickly came to see that you really needed professional soldiers. And we wouldn't have won the revolution if we'd relied on the militia. And I don't think there's much in, you know, I mean, I, I think he understood that. And I think he also understood uh, the character of these people he was praising. But in part, what he was doing was trying to make, to, to elevate their status, so to speak, um, because he believed that there was something very important politically in, in their way of life. So whenever he's, I, I really think you do have to think when you, when you read his letters, for example, who, to whom is he writing the letter? Because that will dictate how he talks to the person. And again, a lot of people see this as being devious, as being, you know, uh, it is, I think, true of Jefferson that he, Steve was alluding to this, that he didn't like controversy. And he, he tended to agree with people, even though you could you can tell if you read the letter that he really didn't in a way. So I think you always have to be careful with Jefferson about that. I see that as Jefferson's part of his brilliance as a uh, politician, um, and I think that that explains a large part of his success. I don't think it ultimately undermines, at least for me, it doesn't ultimately undermine his his achievement. Um, I don't know if I really answered your question fully or even, even partly, but that's okay. We can.